I think the first time we met was when you came to Kenya with Kaleidoscope. Yes, yes, that was 2012. So we've known for eight years. Oh my goodness, it's a long time. You are listening to Padded Cell Podcast, a conversation around mental health. I'm your host, Anthony Orluwich. This week, I will be talking to Bisi Alimi, a wonderful, exuberant activist from Nigeria living in London. We talk about some of the challenges he has faced in his life and how he has managed to handle them. But before we do that, I would like to share with you something that he wrote, a poem that will resonate with many of us. Here it is, The Man on the Tube by Bisi Alimi. He sat opposite me, the man on the tube, his eyes red and bright like the burning furnace, his lips shaped like a broken heart, his legs shaking, his hands nervously on his lap. The man in the tube, he looked up at me, his glance tearing through me. I looked away, he kept looking. I smiled, he smiled. The man in the tube, he smiled again and I smiled. Then his smiles reminded me of me. I looked away and he kept staring. The man on the tube, in his red fiery eye and broken heart shaped lips, I saw pains. I looked closer and closer and then closer, then realized that the man in the tube is a reflection of me. I sat opposite me on the tube. I saw my pains and tears and agony. As I sat on the tube, I saw within my piercing eyes the bright future I longed for. As I sat on the tube, the hope for a better future brightened my broken heart-shaped lips. As I sat on the tube, I smiled and realized, I am the man on the tube sitting opposite me. The man on the tube is me. So my name is Bisi Alimi. I'm generally known as the angelic troublemaker. And um, I'm a Nigerian uh, LGBT human rights activist. I live in London um, with my husband and our two lovely dogs. And I've worked in international development and LGBT right now for more than 15 years. That's quite a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> when, when did you leave Nigeria, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, yeah, it's okay. I, I left Nigeria in 2007. It was April 11th, 2007. Uh, that was when I, I left Nigeria for the UK, finally, because I traveled out f- to the UK for the first time. It was March of 2007. Then I went back to Nigeria and I came back here in April. And you've been living in the UK since? Yes, I've been living in the UK since. What, what prompted your leaving Nigeria? Oh my God, that's a very long story. So <laughs> my, my living in Nigeria uh, happened to be a journey that started in 2004. And um, that was after I came out of national television in Nigeria. Prior to that, about two, two and a half years before then, I lost my best friend to AIDS. And losing him to AIDS was very, was, was one of the, the starting point of a turning point 
um, in my life personally. We were both in university together. So when he died, I I had a very soul-searching conversation with him a week before he died uh, when I went to visit him in the hospital. And um, it was just that moment that I wanted to do more. By this time, I was already in. I was already in university studying theater art. I always wanted to be mm-hmm. so, but that little encounter I had with him, and stayed with me, and I still have goosebumps even when I when I um, think about it. And so I I started researching about HIV and AIDS and stuff like that, and that kind of sparked something in me that I might equally has been. I've been positive, but I wasn't really sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I I lived with this for two and a half years. Um, but I then decided to join uh, an organization to volunteer for them. It's called Alliance Rights. And was an, was the foremost um, gay HIV organization in Nigeria. So I volunteered for them and then I became their program officer for policy volunteer. And eventually I became the policy director uh, employed for the organization. But as I was doing this, I was also still in school, you know, trying to be an actor. I graduated in 2004, but and I, I did, before I graduated, I actually had my first big break in TV when I was featuring in a um, in a soap opera as a leading um, as a um, um, as a as a, as one of the leading actors um, on, mm-hmm. on a soap in Nigeria. So that sparked a lot of interest in my private life. I was about to be out there. To cut a long story short, I came out on TV. I lost my acting career. So I focused on activism. And I was doing that till 2007 when I was invited to the UK um, to speak at um, Doris Higgins Trust Conference. And I did some media work here. I went back to Nigeria. I was physically attacked and almost killed. And that just, I, surviving that was just all I needed to, to run out of. To, to, to make a decision to run out of Nigeria. And uh, I ran out in my, uh, April of 2007. Yeah. Oh my God. That, that's, that's quite a, that's quite a background. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I currently do not live in Kenya uh, and it's not because of uh, being outed or anything. I was also outed on national TV, but not probably not quite as, as big as your outing. And actually losing someone to HIV, to AIDS uh, at, at that particular time must have been quite uh, quite a shock. It was a shock. It was really, really a big shock because um, Ibrahim was the next thing to a brother to me. You know, um, I didn't really have a very good relationship with my brother. And it was also very interesting because Ibrahim and I never really liked each other. Um we used to meet on the gay scene in Lagos and was this very flashy and very outspoken, very beautiful, very tall guy. And everybody likes him. Everybody adores him. Everybody wants to talk to him. And I just, I just hated him because he's everything I wanted to be. You know, that <laughs> high school musical show where you have the little brat that is, is famous with everybody. And there's just one person that is just hanging around the corner, just wanting to be like that person. And yes. eventually we, we met at a university and we were staying in the same hostel. And it was like, oh, BC Ali and I was like, oh, Ibrahim. And that was all we needed. And we became so close. And we we like, you know, we joked about the fact that, oh, he thought I was like, I was the life of the party and it kind of feels intimidated by me. And I was like, you're joking. I, every time I see you, I'm like always in intimidated by who you are and how people love you 
and that that was a kind of relationship that we built. And and the backstory to this was even when he had a relationship with someone in the university and the person turned back, turned against him, reported him to the uni that he was soliciting sex from him and they they had to um he had to face a panel. It was so bad, but because that because because we were so close, I had to be dragged into that panel with him because they were like, whatever he's doing, I must know of it. And we must You're be- also doing. So that's how much people know the two of us are close. So when he left, when he died, yeah, it was like a big chunk of me um, just went away. That's uh, that's horrible. I'm really sorry you had to go through that. Let's just talk about mental health for a second here. That incident must have caused quite a lot of mental anguish to you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. It did so much so because... Prior to him dying, there were a lot of people within the gay community in Nigeria that were just dropping like autumn leaves at that time. And it was a very scary period. We were young, you know, the youngest amongst us, maybe around 17 years old, the oldest maybe in their, maybe in their mid-30s. We were really young and we were dying. So knowing for me personally that I might be positive was a very scary thing that I did not take a test until 2004. Um, but it wasn't just that, you know, there is, you know, the 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 filter news from the US and Europe that HIV, it's it's a gay um, virus. And, you know, yes. that this just, it just stays with you, isn't it? It just become part of you and kind of like, oh my God, what kind of punishment is this? So you have to deal with that. You have to also deal with your rejection, the homophobia, I mean, I was, I, myself and my friends, we were like constantly harassed and, and beaten and all of those. We will have parties, our parties, we get hijacked. You know, all of these things were just building up together. And me coming from a religious home, I played a very, very strong influence on my life. That was the reason I attempted my first suicide when I was 17. And, and I became depressed. And by the time I was in my mid twenties Mid, late 20s, I was, you know, already overdosing on so many things. By the time I was 30, I was cl- I was diagnosed clinically depressed and um, I was sectioned in the U- in the UK twice. You know, I was I was um, kept in a mental institution once, you know, all of these damages just they just like just came together to just kind of like just took over, um, it was like a demon that just took over me. And, you know, people would see me making fantastic posts or standing up to speak or being empathic. And, but deep down, it was this, this shallow emptiness. It's just sucking me up, basically. And, and unfortunately, especially for people who actually speak out and are very outspoken as you are, most of the time, people do not actually do not want to either. They do not want to see it or they do not actually see beneath the surface that there is actually a human being who who feels who uh, who who's suffering most of the time. Yeah, because, you know, um, I think the, the, the issue behind the whole concept of mental health is the stigma around it and the expectation to have a look. Of must say when it comes to the discussion around Africa, so you have to be roaming on the street with your clothes torn off and speaking to yourself, and those, that's when you are mental, right? 
mm. within the context of this discussion in Africa. In Europe, yes. it's a complete different thing. It's a, it's a state where you are, and it's it's a spectrum. You know, you start from the mild to the extreme, and we're not having that kind of conversation on the continent. I'm I'm glad it's starting up, but we 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 didn't. We didn't start off that conversation around the spectrum of mental health. So we always mental health as people who are walking down the street and who are, for lack of a better word, mad. So now we increasingly are breaking the silence around mental health. We're talking about it. And all of a sudden, the people that you're looking up to, that are your role models, that you want to be like, are coming out and saying, you know, I'm breaking. And it just helps you to put things into perspective. And I think that most of the within the LGBT community is a conversation that we need to have, just like we're having conversations around HIV. It's one big conversation we need to have because we are prone to having mental health issues because of years of rejection, because of years of religious impact on our lives. And we need to be open and honest and, and sincere about how we talk about it, about the journey that we are going through, and about sometimes even the happiest of all of us find it difficult mm-hmm. to get out of bed in the morning. Absolutely. I mean, look at look at people who actually um, who who we've lost due to mental health issues. Someone like Robin Williams. You'd never really think that, that that's a person. You, you think about Robin Williams and you think about Mrs. Doubtfire. And you, you wouldn't think that that's a person who's been suffering with, with, uh, from depression. But yes, this, the, we need to talk about these issues. And that's why I, I, I started this podcast, to, to, to end the stigma around mental health, to show people that, you know what, you can actually talk about how you're feeling, you can talk about the things that you're going through, and there will be someone out there who will listen to you. And and it is that listening that is very important. Uh, I spoke at an event at the National Student Pride in the UK, and I posted the video recently on my Facebook page. But it was very interesting that people started coming in and saying that, oh, it's easier for you to tell us to talk to people. But if we talk to people, that they go on to tell other people. And one thing that I always tell people is that telling people about your mental health is enough that you're vulnerable. What they do with that information, it is not your business, right? It's the fact that you have someone who can listen to you. The point is this. People will do whatever they want to do with the information you're giving to them. And you should be able to prepare yourself for that. But that should not stop you from saying it out. You know, even if you if you can't tell someone, type it out. Journal. Get a book. Write it in a book. Let your pen, your paper, and your mind talk to each other and, and just get it out of your system because it helped me. You know, when, when my when my ex-boyfriend died in the UK and I was at the lowest of my life, one of the things that helped me is journaling. And now I still have I still have my diary here. And sometimes I go back to it and I and I read some of the things that I said that I was going to do. You know, some of the I, 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 I'm reading how I was describing the pain that I was going through that nobody knew. I still had my job. I would still go to the club. I would still get drunk. I would still hang out with my friends. But I was describing in detail what I was going through. And now I look back at it and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, the thing is that I always tell people when you discuss something with people, it's not because you expect them to 
keep your secret is because you expect them to listen to you. And you brought me from that point of, I'm telling you because I just want to let it out into the universe rather than I want you to keep my secret. Maybe we'll have a different approach to to opening up. Absolutely. I mean, you've you've talked about you've talked a lot about your journey, and you've you've mentioned some of the some of the things that you've gone through. You've mentioned an attempted suicide at seventeen. You've mentioned, you know, issues that you've gone through in in the UK. What kept you going? What was this one thing or two things? Or what were the things that kept you? saying, hey, you know what, tomorrow is another day. I will go on until tomorrow. Is there something that kept you going? You know, initially it wasn't really anything. It was just like, I mean, at 17, the suicide failed. At 32, uh, I was pumped out in the hospital three times. Um, sometimes I just realized that maybe there's something about the universe. It's just like, no, you're not going anywhere, bitch. You have got it wants you to stay. <laughs> you have wanted to just stay and finish your game to die. <laughs> you know, and I, yeah. this kind of thing. But I, you know, as as I grew older, I started having reason to, reasons to 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 be alive, and that was that I started seeing life differently and i think one of the one of the turning point for me was when a, a friend told me that do you know that life is a gift and i didn't really understand what he was talking about and he asked he said what is the thing that you most press, you must appreciate you have so much love for in your life that you 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 know it's a treasure to you and i mentioned it, i said if anything happens to that, how will you make you feel? And I said, oh, it will make me feel really, really sad, like like that. And I said, will you compare your life to that? And I I paused for some time and I realized that actually my life is really precious to me. And it's something that I treasure so much. And And, you know, it wasn't so much about, we didn't start off with, what will other people looking up to you do? Because one of the things he said is, I don't want to think about the people looking up to you. You have to be selfish for your mental health. So we have to start with you. And when when I when when I was able to connect to and with that and appreciating how lovely life is, the next question he asked was, How do you think the people that look up to you will feel when you're not here anymore? And you know, I was able to put all of these things together and all of a sudden, I just appreciate the gift of life. And for and I promise myself that for as long that I, I have it, it will always be a treasure to me. I will always appreciate it. I will always breathe into it. I will always, you know, carry it with so much tender, loving care. I will always pay attention to it. And that has helped me um, in a way. And then I came across meditation. So I, I started doing meditation. And that also helps me to start my morning. And and now we start a group meditation with my colleagues and some of the some of the people in Nigeria that just sign up into it. And it's, you know, we're building a community of people who just meditate together. I love to run uh, if I have the time. So I go for a run. That helps me to just get off anything that's on my chest. I go to the gym sometimes as well. And so, and I, I also love being alone. I love my me time. Um, and that's something that I, I'm very happy. I have a husband that is very understanding of this. That when I wanted my time, I'll get my time. And if we wanted our time, we'll get our time. So those are the things that have been helping me. But I think the most important part of it, the most important part of it is that moment when I realized that my life is a treasure. 
and I need to take care of it. That's true. And, and it is true for, for many people, for everyone out there that, that is listening, that, you know, our, our lives, we may not at, the, at that moment in time, we may not feel that it is worth anything. But once we look into ourselves, once we have an introspective moment, then we, we can actually, we will see the need for us to live until the next day, until the next day. And it, it's, it's, really, it's really personal. Yeah, it is very personal. And, and another, another thing that I've also noticed <laughs> that I, I learned from, from this, my friend, who is a, who's a wonderful gift, is also, you know, he said, every time life makes you remember the bad days, know that you once had a good day. And, and being able to understand that life is about the good days and the bad days. And and so when 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 I had those moments, you know, I always say to myself, this too will pass. And I'm not I'm not saying it in terms of religious ways, but I'm just saying that, you know, as the day breaks and the night comes, so will this sorrow pass and joy will come. Mm-hmm. And so will this joy pass and sorrow will come. And so we just and that is how it is like day and night, day and night. And that is it, that's how life is, and that's what makes living worthwhile you know you know you have challenges but you also know that you know the the, the sun will come after every dark rainy day and absolutely. Life. absolutely absolutely with all this with everything that you've been through and and being in the uk you've set up a foundation the busy alimi foundation i've seen a lot of great work you had an event on Sunday, uh, on the 17th of May, that was a five-hour long event with so many people attending. Talk about that process <laughs> coming into that particular day. It was such a beautiful event, though. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Coming from you, that means a lot. You know, we've been receiving so much feedback from people. How fantastic day was and I will be I'll be very honest with you Anthony I thought that we were never gonna pull it off. I mean, you know, it was just I was just sitting down and I was just like, okay, there's COVID and the world is going into meltdown and there's hit our bit is coming. We're supposed to have an event in Lagos. We're supposed to have a small event that was supposed to be in Lagos and that wasn't gonna happen anymore. So we're like, what do we do? And I said, oh what if we do this? What if we do this? And I discussed it with my colleagues and the it was a great idea. So I discussed with one of my mentors, Ross Murray, from he works for Glad, and was like, "Oh, I like this idea. I know some celebrities I could get for you." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And and he came back, and I think he was at the point where he got the the black queer celebrities, and they said yes. And I realized, oh, we're not, we cannot go back now. So we can't have- go back, yeah. <laughs> And then I realized that this is not something that we could do on our own. If, if you remember, I wrote you a message asking for Pan-Africa yes. contact. We started reaching out to many organizations across the continent saying, you know, we have this idea and we would love to do it together because I just realized it's too big and we can't do it on our own. Some replied and some didn't. And, and, and it's fine. But the people that replied and they said they wanted to be part of this, we gathered together. And, you know, I really want to say this the, the the what you saw on on the seventeenth of May wasn't just something that B Seventy Foundation did. It was something that everyone that came together put so much effort and resources into it. I mean, when we're thinking about oh, 
we don't have Zoom package. How are we going to do it? Matt Beard introduced us to, to Zoom. Zoom gave us, you know, premium access to Zoom. When we're thinking of, oh, how are we going to get musicians? How are we going to get DJ? People came, people stood up. And people said, I want to do something. And I think to everyone that came, and even when we reached out to the panelists, everyone said yes. So it was just it was just the universe making things happen, but also people believing, believing that it was worth it, that it's something that they want to be part of, that you know, it's something that they should be part of. And that for me was just was just the the the, the best of it all. Did we think we could make it for five hours? We were not sure that we could go for five. We felt that people would be bored <laughs> by an hour because they're sitting in front of their computer. And, Gosh, we had to tell people to leave at 7.30. Yeah, that, that's people, what happens. People were not ready to leave. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> it, it was. It really was. I was I was there for the whole thing. And it was it was an amazing, amazing event. Some of the of the conversations, the conversation, all of the conversations were really pertinent to what is happening in the continent right now for LGBT people. And I, I, I just can't thank you enough for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, you know, we, we, there have been about a few emails that are coming and saying, oh, when is that you're going to do something like that? I was like, nope, we're not doing something like that. <laughs> <laughs> we're lucky it worked with them. Don't let us jinx it. Goodbye. Someone, yeah. else, someone else is happy to do it. We'll be very happy to, to, to be part of it. A lot of people yeah. do it. A lot of sleepless nights. And uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I want to do this again. <laughs> I, I know, I know the feeling. I, I did. Um, it ended up being seven days, but it was uh, daily podcasts for the Idaho Bit event for for this particular podcast. I did daily podcasts from ten different countries. Wow. So that was. I, I I know I do not want to do this again, <laughs> not anytime soon. You know, I, because I was still, I was asking, how are you able to do? Daily, po- I mean, I I had a podcast and I had a team behind it, and it was just six episodes. Even that one was so much. Not to talk of you recording, editing, and producing and putting it out there every day. Every day, I, I will I will thank COVID for this because it has kept me alone in the house. That was the only reason I could actually <laughs> do it every day. But it was it was quite difficult. Let's wrap up. But before we go, I, I will be remiss if I did not ask you about Miss Posh. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Oh, what never. So tell me about Miss Posh. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Miss Posh, she is a pretentious um, full-time housewife who tried to um, come across as being very rich and very loved and very famous. But unfortunately, she buys all her clothes from um, uh, um, from street side in each street in London, where she gets five different dresses for three pounds each. Um, mm. all our jewelry <laughs> are from Primark. The most expensive one costs one pound fifty, and um, mm. and then she gets free wigs from friends and free makeup because she can't make up. But whenever she comes out, everybody thinks she's so glamorous. So yeah, that is Miss Bosch in a nutshell. She's everything I'm not. 
she's <laughs> but, but the invention of Miss Posh is um my husband created that character for me, which okay. is very interesting. <laughs> so I was um I was invited to host a night in, in London. Uh, Africa Writes is a big literary festival in the UK, hosted by um, Royal African Society. And they invited me to be the host for their opening night. And it was supposed to be a discussion. And the theme for the night was love, sex, and poetry. And I was freaking out. How do I talk about sex um, with Africans? How do we how do we talk about whatever it is about sex that we want to talk about with Africans? And... Um, and I was still at home and I was struggling. And my husband just looked at me and said, oh, why don't you drag? You can get away with anything in drag. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I never thought about it. So um, we started putting things together and all of those things. And I was like, oh, my God, what name can I call her now? And it was like, oh, you know, you can just call her Miss Posh. And so that's how we came about Miss Posh. Oh, great! I, I really had to ask about Miss Posh because I've seen the I've seen her glamorousness on Facebook, and I absolutely, <laughs> absolutely had to ask about her. But anyway, thank you so much, Percy, for taking your time and 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 speaking to me on uh, on this podcast. And I will definitely reach out to you again if we need to have more conversations because I think that there is a need for us to, us as, as LGBT queer people, as Black people, as Africans, to talk about mental health. It is in, incredibly important because we don't do it enough. Yes, indeed it is. And I want to thank you for starting the conversation, um, for leading on this. And, um, and thank you so much. Really appreciate talking to you as well. Thank you. Thank you, Percy. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and comment on social media, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Next week, I shall have a chat with Zukis Wawana, a South African journalist and novelist living in Kenya, who will talk about a writer's mental health and read something from one of her books.